The Kern Institute Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Medical Education Matters. I'm Michael Brown, and I'm so excited to bring you a couple of conversations that Herodotus Ellenus and I recorded with two of our collaboratories. What are collaboratories? As many of our listeners know, our collaboratories program is our small grants program designed to fund transformative medical education research. The word collaboratory combines the words collaboration and laboratory, and it refers to a group of people from different backgrounds and at different institutions who use their differences and their unique perspectives to solve a problem in a new and innovative way. Uh, We launched this program back in the fall of 2020 with a request for proposals. We went from letters of intent to full proposals, and then we ultimately funded six research collaboratories. So their funding started in the summer of 2021, and then in the summer of 2022, we extended funding for all of these collaboratories for another year. So these conversations are designed to hear about the program so far and about their plans for this second year of funding. In this episode, we talk with Anna Cianciolo at Southern Illinois University about her collaboratory, led by Principal Investigator Deb Clayman, focused on data science approaches to understanding the nature of character. We then talk with Dave Hatem at the University of Massachusetts about his program investigating the role of learning communities in professional identity formation. We hope you enjoy the conversations. Well, Anna Cianciolo, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so excited to talk to you and hear about your collaboratory, The Data Science of Character. Um, We don't have to get too overly formal here, but could you get us started by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, and and thank you so much. I'm delighted to be on this podcast representing our larger collaboratory doing this work. Um, So I am an associate professor of medical education Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, and I'm also editor-in-chief of Teaching and Learning in Medicine, a journal that was launched by Terrell Mast and Howard Barrows there at SIU School of Medicine in 1989. Uh, So I spend a lot of my time working on editorial kinds of things and a research project like the one that we're doing now with Kern is a real treat. It's an opportunity to focus my efforts on advancing research with my own direct effort, uh, as well as cultivating others. So we already named the title of your of your project, the Data Science of Character, uh, and you mentioned all the other folks you get to work with. Can you do a quick rundown of those so we make sure we get to hear their names as well? Sure. Uh, at Southern Illinois University, I'm working with Deb Clayman. And uh, I'm also working with, our project includes a number of different community and trainee consultants. Um, So at SIU, our trainee consultants are Shri Patel and Madison Bandler. And then we have um, community consultants include Ms. Teresa Haley with the Springfield NAACP. We're also working with Mary Hardy Hall, also at the NAACP. Ms. V. Crawford as well. She's an independent consultant. 
um, at other universities. We're working with Bridget O'Brien at UCSF. She's part of a critical part of our team. And then we have uh, two trainee consultants in residency. One is at UCSF, that's Eileen Portugal, and Alan Garib, who's a resident at uh, Kansas University Medical School, Medical Center. What a fantastic team, Anna. It sounds like both you have quite a few members from, the, um, from your university, but also around the country, which I'm sure makes the collaborative effort even more fun. Could you just share with us what prompted you to propose the project as your topic of research? I know, obviously, your background and your all of the editorial and editorializing part that you do for uh, the journal. But I'm just curious about the project itself. Absolutely. So it was it was interesting how it came about. We at, at SIU we have a a bi-monthly, twice a month um, research meeting that includes members of our department and then other faculty who are interested in medical education. And when the call for proposals came out, we discussed the call in one of these research meetings. And there was a lot of resonance around this idea of what is character and how, how would we go about assessing it if we're going to support a character development process. And the, the questions that we raised about these things resonated with me, given the background that I have in such topic areas as performance assessment, as well as the challenges of unobtrusive assessment. So back before I became a medical educator, I was doing training in education, research and development for the US Army. And one of the topics that was of great interest to them was how you understand interpersonal trust in, in very multifunctional, multidisciplinary teams based on how they communicate with one another. So rather than administering surveys or, or psychometric kinds of instruments to assess this attribute uh, or this affective characteristic of people and teams, what are some other ways that we can examine these things? And so when we talked about character, it seems like another one of these attributes or affective characteristics that would be amenable to understanding based on data that are coming from what people are actually doing. And that would allow us then to potentially develop a, a data science or, or a, an assessment system that would not place additional burden on our medical students and would be naturalistic to the kinds of things that they're already doing. So it would feed into a character development process that's intertwined with all the things that they're already doing and then potentially making it more, making it easier for uptake to happen. Well, and how great this is, Anna, in considering the multidisciplinary teamwork that we envision 
in the health professions and the future that no longer you have the physician at the top of the ladder all alone looking down. Now it's, I think, a more of a platform with multiple members and bringing in, you know, looking into the U.S. Army and how collaborative you have to be in order to be successful in the, you know, whatever your task is makes it extremely important so um wow what what an amazing um connection of pieces between character virtue the attributes the teamwork all of those pieces Mm -hmm. so uh, it's um, i certainly appreciate this hopefully data uh, data science to be created well, along with this complexity of all the different people coming together and, and the ways in which, uh, you know, assessment can be done unobtrusively, there is a side of the collaboratories program that we're, uh, we're curious about from the more technical angle, which is assembling a team like this, getting all the pieces together, figuring how it's going to work is complicated, especially when you're thinking about building a team from such diverse institutions. And I'm wondering, how did that team come together? What was the process like of of writing up that proposal and getting it off to us? It was challenging and it was exciting at the same time. Um, And and the team has evolved over time as well to include new members, which reminds me to mention that there is an additional new member from SIU, Dr. Hyung Han. She is joining us now in the second year of our project. and so we, to draft the proposal, what the, the exciting aspect of the team that we developed is that each person had a, a different area of expertise and they had different interests involved in seeing this, the work itself go forward and seeing the work itself make a difference. And these were overlapping, but they were also different areas of expertise. So when we crafted our ideas. It was very much a, a jam session where we're, we're bringing all of our different ideas together and, and seeing where the convergence is that we could move forward with on a project. And then the proposal itself was each of us contributing our expertise to various parts of the project and recognizing in the sort of the program management plan where our various areas of expertise were going to be the most uh, relevant and when 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 on different parts of the project they would be called into play so it was very much it's almost like a quilt i guess you could say the the proposal was where we were bringing all our pieces together and then my role was to to make sure that the quilt itself once everything was there was coherent and fit the bed i love the metaphor of a quilt i think it's really beautiful um so much of the time when we talk about this collaborative work, we are trying to come up with that metaphor. Uh, We've had several here in the Kern Institute. We've had pillars that we've talked about, you know, pillars supporting something. We've had a a buckyball, this kind of atomic superstructure. Uh, We've also had a tapestry, which I think fits in well with the quilt. Uh, There is something about those pieces being woven together and the goal of creating something that's bigger and beautiful Uh, bigger and more beautiful than any individual thread. Um, One of the complicating factors for putting things together is the fact that we did this proposal 
during a global pandemic, which uh, you know c- continues on in in different forms today. And I'm I'm curious about the impact of that pandemic. Uh, you know, the the natural question is to say, were there any impediments that it offered to your planning and implementation of the project? And I'm certainly interested in in talking about impediments. But I'm also curious if there are any ways in which the pandemic facilitated your work. That's a great question, because I really do think that the pandemic did facilitate our work. Um, From a technical standpoint, because we were a multi-institutional team and our collaborators were in the Midwest and on the West Coast, uh, it was a no-brainer to continue to coordinate virtually. So the the pandemic and lockdown and so forth didn't didn't really affect the work that we needed to do in order to work together as a team. And the initial stages, the initial, gosh, I guess nine months of our project was oriented on literature review and honing our concept of character that we were going to move forward with. And of course, that kind of work is also very amenable to largely remote work. So we didn't experience any real challenges to doing the work itself from the pandemic. But what the pandemic did do for us was, I guess more specifically the twin pandemics of both the the virus itself, but then also the impact of systemic racism on health outcomes that resulted from the virus Um, was a very motivating factor for us in making sure that our project as it moved forward was moving forward with a concept of character that was inclusive. Um, Many constructs in medical education have not been developed with everyone's voice. And so working in that that zeitgeist, if you will, or at a time of, of raised consciousness about the societal issues that we're experiencing was, I think, definitive for us in terms of how we wanted to approach the whole project. I think it would have looked fundamentally different if we had not had our consciousness raised like it was during that time. It seems like one of the impacts of that consciousness raising, um, both in terms of, as, as you noted, these twin pandemics, um, but also the the time that academics had to focus on research in a way that they perhaps hadn't had before. I, I want to get your view really quick, since we have you here, on the impacts of that work on your journal and your role as an editor. W- when did you start to notice an influx in submissions that were touching on the twin pandemics and other things? And uh, did that play any role or shape anything for this collaboratory project? Mm, That's an interesting question. Well, we like all of the other, not only meta journals, but journals pretty much across the board, experienced a massive surge in submissions. Um, And and the submissions, uh, and that was fairly immediate. We were starting to see a surge actually in December of 2019. And then it just exponentially increased as the lockdowns started to take place. Um, And and we didn't necessarily see a a huge surge in topical papers that were about um, educating in a time of of crisis or um, about topics of race 
specifically or social justice specifically, but we were seeing what I, I felt that we were seeing was as researchers had more time because of lockdown to devote to writing and reflection, and they had more cause than ever to take that pause and do that reflection, that we were as a journal serving just a really important role in maintaining people's sense of meaning and purpose and mental health through this crisis. And people were, as, as you see with the transformational times, people were writing their way through this crisis. And, and, and as journal editors, we were seeing this from a, a scholarly, you know, in a scholarly way. And so the seeing, our, seeing myself and, and our editorial board as serving that role so it sort of turns my attention, it turned my attention back again to this question of character and caring. It just made it apparent to me how these, how character and caring just isn't just something we do with our medical practitioners or our trainees. Character and caring is something that can be infused in, in all aspects of medical education, including scholarship. There is a role for for these things in scholarship and it goes beyond ethics, just straight up research ethics. And it goes, it goes into how we position ourselves and see ourselves as part of this larger community that's trying to advance understanding. Um, so there was a lot of synergy between what was happening at the journal level, even as everyone else's engagement in research made it harder for me to engage in research because we had this surge of submission. So <laughs> thankfully it was energizing. So what, what reduced time I had, I made the best use I could out of it. Well, and, and I, I saw part of some of your preliminary results, but what, what interests me in the statement that you just made was the fundamental pieces that perhaps were incorporated in the project because the pandemic occurred. So the inclusivity, that piece of perhaps um, healthcare disparities, the, uh, the systemic racism, and all of those pieces that perhaps might have escaped the initial project, they were definitely part of the project. So it, that brings me to the part of it's a year later, um, preliminary results. Any chance you can share some of what you found that may be beneficial for our audience to hear? Sure, sure. One of our key findings, and this will be a surprise to no one, is just the incredible complexity that is character. And and it's, and it's not just complexity because it's a hard construct necessarily to get your hands around, but that there are so many different people from different lines of work, different philosophical traditions, just different everything that are taking their own look at character and, and owning it in their own ways. So, so there was a lot of complexity that we had to wade through in that first year of the project to understand how are we going to define character such that we can move forward with an assessment uh, a program that would eventually lead to a data science 
um, I, I'd say another key finding that we had is, and this is directly tied to the pandemic is, so the pandemic, the twin pandemics heightened our awareness of how, what the world is calling for physicians that, that go beyond our ethical frameworks, that go beyond our professional frameworks and that have guided our instruction of medical students for centuries. And we're asking our, our physicians to be advocates, to, to resist, to be resilient. I mean, so many characteristics that, that really just, they go into the, the world of uncertainty and ambiguity and, and these sorts of things. And so um, what one of our, our key findings then is that the, when we look at how we would try to assess character in the curriculum, based on the kinds of ongoing activities that are already sampled uh, to understand how students are performing, those, those activities fall neatly, of course, into the frameworks of things like competency and professionalism, ethics, and that sort of thing. But there are whole aspects of character that go uncaptured by the kinds of things that we currently assess. And so we chose the, the positive psychology framework of the character strengths as the, the one we would move forward with. And there's, there's a whole set of, of character strengths that are not, they're just not emphasized in our professionalism literature. And, and, and they're also interestingly, not necessarily um, emphasized by our patients. And we, we interviewed hundred and more than 120 community members to explore their ideas of physician character. And uh, when we coded those reflections for the character strengths, there, there was some overlap with the, the medical literature, the professionalism literature, but there, again, there was this gap in terms of which, um, which character strengths are, are being emphasized. And so the lesson learned for us is that if, if we want to develop whole, whole people among our students, if, if we want to help our trainees be their whole selves and to create a, a learning and a workspace that encourages people to bring their whole selves and cultivate their whole selves, we have to adapt our assessment frameworks to appreciate all the aspects of self. And these are aspects of self that are normally thought of as, as being in the personal realm of life versus the work realm of life. Things like the, the transcendent strengths like awe and hope and gratitude and zest. And, and these are things that we're wondering now that what we're wrestling with now in the project is, you know, how would we go about assessing those things so that they're the information we gather is meaningful to our trainees and helps them and doesn't become a, an assessment exercise like we typically see in medical education. Um, something that's aimed at development, aimed at supporting our, our trainees versus something that we tick the box on, something that we evaluate our learners on and that sort of thing. Um, so that's maybe that's the long way around, but I think the key lesson is that there's a lot that we need to be assessing if we're going to expect our, our physicians to be people of character that we're not 
And we, we have to be clever in how we do it so that we don't just fall back into old frameworks that are incomplete. Well, and what a complex world we live in, right? And it, it reminds me the ACGME competencies that they were initially put in, and we kept calling the soft competencies, the professionalism, the interprofessional communication, which I think I call the money competencies, because those are the rich pieces that make a character complete. So, and then we put the milestones, right? We included these milestones in order to check boxes and say, oh, okay, if you do this, we're going to check the box for this. So uh, what a concept, right? You know, we started with how many years that we've been working on this um, continuum, I would call it, and we still haven't gotten right. We hope we are moving into the future to get it right. I'm curious about, again, trying to tie a little bit of your own work with the journal. With all of this submission of education material, was there anything useful for the project? Did anything tie in with your work that perhaps allowed you to both explore more, but also tie in some pieces? Hmm. That is a great question. And honestly, I'm, I'm not sure that, that the submissions themselves tied in helpfully to the project. I, I think that character is relatively understudied in medical education literature, at least the kind that, that we receive at TLM. We do have some papers that we've published relatively recently that that do talk about aspects of character um, and they, they're important contributions. Um, but when we opted to move forward with the, the positive psychology concept of character, we were diverging from, from the literature. We've, we see it in the med-ed literature, but we're diverging, I think, from a topic that is really dealt with much in, in med-ed. Um, so in that respect, I, I think the papers that were most influential to our thinking were coming from other places. That said, uh, again, the, the whole process of editing in a, in a reflexive way was, it, it was very informative to how we approached the project, at least for me, because it was a, a praxis, I guess. You know, it was, it was a hands-on, way of living, you know, reflecting on the character strengths and, and living what they mean to me. So they, they brought a different kind of, of contribution to the project by shaping my own lens, I guess, that I was approaching the project with. Um, and, you know, just finding, trying to actively trying to find ways to express and demonstrate character, doing the above and beyond kind of advocacy work and, and what that looks like in when you're in an editorial role, which is typically not associated with advocacy. You know, how do all these things look and, and what kinds of things am I going through that 
our students might go through or our faculty and staff might go through because you know we're envisioning a, a wholesale institutional change by assessing character, not just something that's where the onus is placed on medical students. Um, so there, there were definitely tie-ins, but ways I would not have expected when we started out. Yeah, it's interesting that there, there's this sort of challenge and opportunity that you had to both demonstrate the character skills that your collaboratory is studying, but also then have that reflexive lens back on how am I handling this, this influx that we're receiving, this extra work for me, this uh, different opportunities to use my time because of pandemic restrictions that I see my colleagues taking advantage of in a certain way. How do I, how, how do I navigate that as perhaps I don't have that time to do it? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious about other challenges that you faced in this particular project. There's one specific area that I'll just bring up because I'm curious if there were challenges in this notion of the intensive involvement of community members and the incredible gift that they gave to your collaboratory of their time and their expertise and their wisdom and their observations about physicians and the medical system. Were there any particular challenges in making that piece of this project such a success? That's a great question. We, with the incredible efforts of our community advocates, Ms. Haley, Ms. Hardy Hall, and uh, Ms. Crawford, they, it was incredible how they were able to marshal community members uh, to share their insights with us. And they, they faced the, the greatest challenges in terms of asking what, you know, they, I was part of, of several of the focus groups, but I wasn't there for all of them. And when you're asking the community, especially because we, we specifically welcomed the input of communities of, of patients who are typically seen as problematic by the, the healthcare field. Um, so these are people with uh, additional healthcare needs. There are people who make extensive use of the healthcare system. There are people who are often difficult to treat with the way our healthcare is currently aligned. Um, so when you start to get stories from these people, they can be reliving traumas that they experienced when they felt gaslit by, by medical providers, when, when they narrowly escaped severe illness or death because they were not listened to by healthcare providers. Um, so one of the challenges is um, as, as an institution representing a, a, a research project is making sure that our community members feel heard and that they get concrete feedback about what we're doing with what they told us. And we have to communicate that in a way that is immediately accessible to them rather than in, say, the kind of summary of a, or a project update that we might produce for the current institute or other, other scholars. Uh, so the, the, in a nutshell, that, that key challenge is, is treasuring and cultivating that relationship in a very open way, being open to, to changing and to communicating in ways that are new so that we can have this be a bi-directional and, and a long-term relationship, not just a one-off set of focus groups or interviews.
It's one of those examples where the people who we can learn the most from are also the people who probably have the least interest and motivation in helping us learn those lessons mm -hmm. because of these experiences they've had. Um, so navigating that, I, I find that so fascinating. And I'm so glad you were able to connect with these community advocates and, and leaders to help to help those with so much to give recognize that value can come from this um, and that that things will come back to the community. It's not just uh, a, a one way street. You know, we kind of talked about community and we talked about uh, the teams and character and virtue and all the complexity. There's so many ways that this project can go. I'm, I'm just curious of your expertise and your team members' expertise of where do you think you want to take this? Yeah, well, we there's two paths that we want to take next and in, in the coming year of the work that we're doing. And they're actually very tightly interleaved. And that is we want to now we've we've identified the, the rough architecture of what an assessment framework would look like if we were to accomplish a kind of programmatic assessment of character. Um, but the architecture is one thing and the actual assessment exercises and uh, how you represent the assessment data are another matter. And so we want to work on now fleshing out what will the actual assessments look like in this, this larger project and uh, assessment framework. And the other, the other direction that we wanna take is we want to actually now start with character development activities themselves. Uh, Deb Clayman and our student consultants are really excited about what we can do to not only to help students develop in their um, in their character strengths that are maybe not given time and space in the curriculum, but also what are the kinds of things we can do with staff and faculty and and our institutional policy that can create the space and the safety for people to bring their whole selves to their learning and, and teaching environments. Um, and I think, so as we start to build this architecture of what the, a blueprint, I guess I should say, of, of what these different exercises will be like and, and how they're situated within our current curriculum and assessment programs and, and blueprint how it all kind of goes together, I think at that same time is when we'll be identifying our assessments because they'll be part of these exercises and there'll be assessments that are not just um, aimed at students, but again, aimed at developing a larger institutional picture of what our organizational character and virtuousness is like as well. Um, we can't expect our students to develop their whole selves if there isn't a single person role modeling bringing their own whole self to work. And if our policies don't give students time to, to develop that whole self, even if it means extracurricular kinds of activities. Um, so those are the two main directions that we're, we're going in. And I think that they're going to feed off of each other very nicely. Isn't that interesting how we always talk about the systemic changes that we need to make in order to provide us with the platform to promote 
whatever we are doing. Because nowadays, you know, our, whether it's medical education, whether it's business, whatever uh, domain you want to talk about, it's a big piece, right? It's that systemic change that we need to make in order to provide us with the support and resources and forward movement. So as we are closing off, I, I'm sure our audiences would love a couple of take-home messages from you and your team. Is there something that you would like to leave us with? I guess I would, one of my items would be a, actually a question. And so we see in, in various interventions to try to improve students' empathy with patients, um, or their communication skills with patients, all things that reflect character and that patients want, we see a lack of lasting or meaningful change. And so the question that I want to put out there is, if, if we, how can we expect our, our medical practitioners to be empathetic and to be good communicators, if we don't also actively foster things like their gratitude, their humility, their hope, and their curiosity. And so when we think about what it is that we want to develop, how, what are we, what are the other sides of the coins that we're failing to look at in order to create contexts and create capacities that are going to promote character in medicine. Uh, I think that's been a big, big lesson that we've learned from our project. Um, the other, I guess I would say, is our, I think our team wholeheartedly embraces this idea that we can't, we can't pour old wine into new casts. <laughs> it, we, we don't want to approach assessment of character with the old models of assessment that have been the framework for everything we do in medical education for a very long time. Um, so we, our take-home messages, you can't, if you're going to assess like you've always assessed, you're going to get the characteristics that you've always gotten. And it's time to really do something quite novel and different, which may seem scary to some but uh, we're excited about it. I think uh, a little bit scary fits well with the audacious type of proposals that we called for when we put out the RFA uh, for these collaboratory projects. So I think, uh, I think landing on scary is probably a, a pretty good place to land. <laughs> Anna, I wanna thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Uh, I know our listeners are loving getting to hear these more intimate conversations about the collaboratories. And we look forward to having you back as your team continues your second year of work here. And uh, we look forward to hearing what new results come out of this. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a delight to ch chat with you. Welcome, welcome. Today is another episode of our uh, Medical Education Matters and um, at the Kern Institute. And today our guest from the collaboratories is Dr. David Haddam. 
Um, Dave, um, would you like to give an introduction of yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I'm a general internist. I'm at the UMass Chan School of Medicine in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and I, my whole career has been uh, involved in medical education in addition to practice. Um, right now, I'm the co-director of our learning communities. Um, and when I look back on my career, it really has been thinking about professional development of students and how they develop into physicians. And so I think that's really informed our project and our, our group and our collaboratory. Tell us a little bit about this title of the project that you have for the collaboratories and, and perhaps an outline of your team members. Yeah. So our title is probably the longest title in the collaboratories. It's, it's called Laying a Strong Foundation and the idea of how do medical schools with and without learning communities promote character, caring, and professional identity formation during students' pre-clerkship years. Um, and we actually have seven schools involved in this. And so our team members, um, we have William Agbor Bailly from the Chicago Medical School. Um, we have Tweed No from uh, Johns Hopkins, um, Megan McVansell from uh, University of Iowa, Renalini uh, Kulkani Date from the, uh, and Alejandro Moreno um, from the University of Texas uh, at Austin Dell Medical School, uh, Kurt Pfeiffer from Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, Beth Ann Yakes from Vanderbilt University. Um, and those are our schools. And then our analysis team has Marge Wenrich um, and Jen Quaintance um, from the University of Washington and the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Um, we came together, we had a first phase of this project and the, the Kern Collaboratories is actually a second phase, but we started out as a group of learning community schools. Um, and there's an organization called the Learning Communities Institute that's really looking at what do learning communities do for medical education. Um, and our first phase of the study, we interviewed um, 56 students at four medical schools, all of whom had learning communities. Um, and what we realized is that a lot of students were saying the learning communities really influenced me most heavily in the first two years. Um, and then we also thought by having people at the end of medical school look back on their professional development or professional identity, maybe there's some things that we were missing. And so as part of our learning communities, we have a research network. Um, and so a group who was part of this first project said, let's look at just the pre-clerkship years and see what's happening because that's what the students were saying is the learning communities are really influential then. So talk a little bit more about this notion of professional identity development. I think it's one of those concepts that when people hear about it, it has this they have a connection to it. They understand what it means, but it's not necessarily language that someone might use. So so what is this idea of professional identity development? So that's really an interesting question because I think early on in career, I, I thought, well, there's this personal and professional development and there's this person who comes into medical school and they come out a doctor. Um, and you realized as you talk about adopting professional behavior or the error of professionalism, that a lot of what was being talked about was how you behave. 
And yet, occasionally, we'd we'd uh, talk to students who'd say, "Well, what if I don't believe that? Or what if they really struggle with how they should behave in a uh, certain way?" And you realized this is really a a transformational journey, and this is them adding to their person um, by putting on a professional identity and integrating it with their personal identity. The idea is it's it's not that you remove your old identity. It's an additive thing. Um, and so the idea of transforming a lay person into a physician, that's a really intriguing concept um, of how do you do that and how do you make sure that students know that there's room for yourself and you to individualize, but there are some boundaries around the professional rules and the professional values. Well, it, it's certainly an intriguing piece, the journey, the destination that we take medical students in, in order to get them to uh, become a colleague, a physician, whatever you want to call that destination. And I'm I'm intrigued by the pre, by the pre clerkship um, years because, as you said, some of those are the most formative years for um, the trip, for the destination, for the journey. So, out of all of this, I know you had come with your team with um, a proposal, and. Um, Perhaps tell us a little bit about this timeline, the schedules of all of this proposal that came into effect over the last couple of years. Well, the timing of this was actually perfect in terms of putting it together in that we had a pre-existing team. And, you know, anytime you want to execute a research idea, it's always good to feel like you're starting in the middle. Okay, we have a team who's interested in this. Um and I think one of the really great things about working with Kern is there's been a relationship and feedback and saying, okay, that's a great idea about learning communities, but what if other schools are doing it a different way? So let's let's broaden it and look at schools who don't have learning communities yet. Um, and that allowed us to reach out to some current partner schools to say, um, can we look at this question in a much more rigorous way? You know, we're not just looking at learning communities. Um, and given that there was already a relationship to Kern, I think, you know, that really fostered the development of team. Um, it really helped that we had a pre-existing team that we can say, hey, we, we've worked together. We can hit the ground running. Um, we can start this project up. And with having done a prior project, we have a template for how to, how to do this work. Um, and so that was really helpful. Um, and what I would also say is it then allowed us to put processes in place that we had already used. And we knew that they uh, had been tried and true and would be helpful. Um, so I think that that's, um, that that's, was a really nice way to get started. For these folks that you uh, had worked with, how did those connections initially come about for this team that was in place? Is this something, yeah, had you all worked together at the same institution? Was it coming together because of, of general academic interest? Yeah, um, it came out of academic interest and it came 
in the development of a different organization, the, the Learning Communities Institute. So at first, the Learning Communities Institute, we would get together at the AAMC meeting, you know, and it was people who just were involved in learning communities and wanted to talk with each other. And after a while, that time became insufficient to really have the conversations that you needed to have to help you further develop your learning communities. And so we developed this organization of the Learning Communities Institute and started a national meeting and things like that. One of the things we realized a few years into it was to grow as an organization, one of the things that we should probably be doing is talking to the external world about learning communities. And the way you do that in academics is, is there research that we can conduct? Um, and so within the, the Learning Communities Institute, um, we developed the, the research network. Um, and the idea was to do some studies looking at outcomes of learning communities in medical education. Um, and this was one of the first big projects. Um, we sort of had um, some smaller projects looking at faculty outcomes in learning communities, but pretty early on, there was a subgroup who said, I really think learning communities is doing something for professional identity formation. And let's start a project looking at that. Um, and so that was 13 people involved in that first project. Um, and now we have 10 people involved in this. And so um, it's really been an, it's really been an outgrowth of another organization's development too. Um, and I think that, this is another organizational growth piece is, okay, now it's time to collaborate with other organizations um, as a way to make further connections and, and refine our work. Well, and I think, Dave, you, you hit the nail on the head by saying this is kind of, let's not reinvent the wheel, right? We start with one organization. We brought up some critical pieces, some critical connections. We build bridges Let's keep moving on to the next step. What are some of the collaborative aspects that we can put together that allow us to innovate, to transform medical education by adding more to this, you know, layer, if you want to call it? Yeah. And I think one of the really interesting things that may come out of our project um, is we realized our questions have to incorporate COVID and social justice, you know? And so we better ask about that. One of the interesting aspects of that though, is that the collaboratory idea, I think has probably been impeded by this idea of COVID. Um, not so much social justice, but we haven't physically been able to get together the way I think you all intended because of that same force. But It'll be interesting as we further uh, work together and develop um, this collaboratory and group. I I'll really am excited to sort of see where where the next steps take us. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that impediment that the coronavirus pandemic created for getting together. What do you feel like you missed out on by not being able to get together in person in in a way that you might have wanted to? This gets at the, you know, the title in a way again, is this sense of foundation um, and the sense of establishing relationships with people. Um, and I think one of the strengths of our project is we say, okay, we have a foundation as a group and we've worked together enough that we can do Zoom easily. Um, 
And we can foster relationships across Zoom. Whereas I think as we got together as a collaboratory group and we heard each other talk, it was, there was no more, yes, that reminds me of, and let me ask you, and let's go and have a coffee and talk in more depth about that idea. Um, there were more and more conversations that were 15 minutes and then question and answer. Um, and with the scope of what you all are trying to do, um, my guess is the subgroups probably bonded a lot more than the whole group. And we actually find that in our learning communities. Um, during COVID, we had much smaller, smaller subgroups that were bonding, but the whole school hasn't bonded in the same way. Um, and that's just a fact. And I think what we probably have to do is think, okay, what's, what's the next step of building these relationships and how do you all involve all the grantees um, over time? Well, that makes me think of the connection between you know, a learning community, a small group experience as an opportunity for students to form closer bonds with a few students and to ensure then in an ideal world that every student will have a close bond with at least some other students so that you hopefully don't have that student who's completely isolated. But at the same time, because of those restrictions, which you just mentioned, there is always that risk that now the small group is is isolated in its own way. Uh, and doesn't have that opportunity to bridge connections with more of the small groups and the class as a whole. Um, I wonder if we'll be seeing effects of the, coming from that in the future. So pandemic effects, uh, even stretching out into clinical practice, that there may be changes in relationships and team structures and other things because of these pre-clerkship years that were disrupted by the pandemic. I think, you know, this goes beyond the scope of this project, certainly, but yet we are seeing that, um, you know, we had an interesting experience where our house leaders in my learning community or in my house were getting together. And the second year students who were very COVID restricted for a significant portion of the year sat on one side of the table with masks on. And the first year students who came in as a whole class this year and we were less masked. They were sitting on the other side of the table. Nobody had a mask on. Um, and you just see habits and we have to, we're uh, working with the question of how do we create community again? That's an interesting question because we, we have these class experiences and people who say, we should do this in person. And sometimes our students say, why? You know, how about I be at home you know, with my loved ones and do it at a distance. And so I, I think it's going to force us to be much more purposeful around what we're doing and why in terms of creating community. David, just a question for me about um, the pandemic and again, some of the maybe challenges or opportunities, as you said, you know, be at home and provide this small group from my own home with my loved ones. But I have, I, I'm curious about, from faculty perspective, who are essentially your team leaders, how has that affected them in this learning communities and being in isolation themselves? Yeah, I'm not sure um, that we absolutely have a handle on that just yet. Um, 
whether that influenced our response rates. You know, I think that as I send out emails saying, please, please fill this out, whether this is just another in a series of emails, um, I think um, our target was the 35% response rate. Um, and we achieved that at some schools and didn't achieve it at other schools. Um, I don't know that we know why that is. Um, I do think that at some of the schools um, and with some of the data, you can see some students really answering um, in a very rote way, whereas there were other students who really took it seriously and, and really thought about it and reflected on it. Um, we don't absolutely know that um, why certain students did it and we'll be able to see whether it seems to be across schools. Um, I know here at UMass Chan, um, one of the significant activities that was preserved as in-person was some of our clinical skills teaching that we do within the learning communities. And so there still were relationships fostered um, that I think allowed us to attend to these issues of professional identity formation that led people to say, okay, I've thought about this so I can fill this out. It's very interesting. I think the pan we, we have so um, many future directions with this pandemic, these two years that we will always say the before and after the pandemic, which I think that's an interesting part for any of the research, whether it's in education or clinical or anything we have done. Um, my question to you, is it's been about a year and a half since the award was given. Is there any chance you can share some of the preliminary results that you might have had of the project? The way our project worked really was the first year was very much data collection. Um, and the second year is data analysis, which we're pretty immersed in. Um, and yet I think what you'll get from me right now is kind of my perception, you know, influenced by the research team meeting, but it's, we're really still in the middle of, you know, all of our coding of responses and getting at our data analysis. But having said that, I would say we're getting a really interesting snapshot of students and their perceived role. Um, you know, who's, who's feeling like a medical student? Who, who's feeling like a physician in training? And how do they see themselves with regard to that, especially when in pre-clerkship years, they're really just dipping in and out of clinical rotations or clinical experiences. Um, and they're just getting small amounts of um, experience. But there's some students who really say, hey, I'm a pre-clerkship student. My head's in a book. That's my job. I study. Um, and yet there's others who earlier you talked about this journey and some people really see it that way right from the beginning of, and so I'm practicing with patients and I'm learning how to care or they told me that they perceive my caring. That's really meaningful. So even small experiences, we're finding that a subset of students really look at this as a journey from the beginning. And I personally think that the more we as faculty can really speak to students about this idea of a journey right from the start, we'll give them some background perspective so that, you know, they're heading a book 
you know, I'm in the foreground and really overwhelmed. Hopefully we'll be able to give them the, the anticipatory guidance and the view of this is where you're going. And Dave, I may, if I may ask about this subset of students, were you able to ascertain are those any particular subset of students? Is it age and maturity? Is it ethnicity? Is it what is there something that you were able to ascertain from the data that you collected so far about those students? Yeah, I don't think we're there yet, you know, because especially with the qualitative data set, you know, we we don't um, we haven't been able to discern that quite yet. But there are some suggestions that um Maybe schools do it differently, and and we really have to look at that, you know. But I think as we, as we have subgroups who are working in teams to code, you know, I have my impressions of the various schools, but we have to check with the team to say, is that just the transcripts that we were assigned, or is that something across schools? Um, you know, are we finding that some students are like, yep, I do pre-clerkship, and you know, then I'm going to become a doctor, um, and is that a school-based effect? Um, or is that going to be something that really is individualized um, and a function of the individual? Um, I do wonder, um, and my hope at UMass Chan is that the idea of the professional identity formation for our students is the idea of an accompanied journey, as opposed to many people from many years ago in medical school, it was like, I'm going through here and I'm slogging through by myself. Um, and I think the idea of learning communities is to foster a sense of belonging, foster a sense of resources, foster a sense of relationship, somebody that's helping them through. Um, well, and, and isn't that an interesting piece that, you know, how many years ago, physicians, again, were sitting at the pedestal all, you know, by themselves, and you were looking down on everyone, essentially, thinking that you're alone, and you were many times doing that alone. And you've come around to say, perhaps that that's not the right way. We need, we need our mentors, our sponsors, our team members, our teams, who, whatever those team constituents are, whether they're information technologists, whether they're pharmacists, whether they're nurses, whether they're other physicians and so on. So I think this has, is bringing us to a, a very different place as um, in medical education. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think one of the interesting things in this project and with Kern's emphasis around care and caring is we have a question that we ask of students and our answers are really interesting because, you know, it's how does care and caring integrate into your professional identity? Um, and I think in years past, people might've answered that in terms of their care for others or their care for patients. And what we're hearing from students, and I, th I think this is great insight is they're saying, you know, I need to make sure I take care of myself you know, by the way, I feel that this school cares for me and that puts me in a position to care for others. Or I feel like 
sometimes the school doesn't. So how are you going to foster our caring for others if we don't feel care from our peers, from our faculty, from our institution? That's a real charge. And that's, I think that parallel process is a um, challenge to medical education, but one that we should rise to um, is really let's make sure that we're caring for our students the way we want them to care for our patients. And ultimately, as faculty, the way they we want them to care for us because we're patients as well. Well, and and I do think there is a little more to it, and it's a something that I speak every day at work. It's not just caring about our patients; it's also caring about each other, right? So it's the value that an institution puts on their workers, whoever those workers are, whether it's leadership, whether it's staff, whether there's faculty and so on. It's that community that hopefully we are aiming for is the caring for everyone. And wouldn't that be a better world if we could get everyone to think that way? So but that would probably be in another podcast episode between Michael and I and our collaborators. So yeah, yeah. But I, I think that's absolutely the charge is, you know, let's create a parallel process so that um, we're treating people the way we want them to turn around and treat people. Regardless of your position, their position, you know, this is coworkers, this is colleagues, this is fellow students, this should be fellow faculty, this should be patients, this should be administrators. Um, you know, and so let's model, let's walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So we just heard about some of the fantastic progress that you all have made and, and where you're heading from here. I'm wondering, in getting to this place where you are, what kind of challenges did you face along the way? What were the, what were the things that you felt you had to overcome in order to get to this great place where you are right now? You know, I think some of it's the practical challenge. Um, I, I think one of the things that's happening in medicine right now is, okay, see more patients, um, do more teaching. Um, and now we add on, okay, and do a significant research project. Um, get more grants. <laughs> yeah, get more grants. The, the reality of get more grants in medical education is, you know, they can say that, but where's the money? And so thank you, thank you to Kern for uh, sponsoring these projects um, because there often is not. But um, so I think everybody has busy, busy lives. Um, but that that to me has been a um, real um, benefit of this collaboratory idea is there is a sanction um, so that as as we get an award to seven institutions, we send it to our you know, our department leaders and our school leaders. And they they celebrate that because it's, um, and so there's recognition around um, being able to investigate something that I think is important. And I think the school really believes in the idea of, okay, we're here in the business of making doctors and we want to make better doctors. And so if you're going to look at that, we will happily support it. Um, and if you are able to, uh, get funds for that project, we're, we'll support it even more. I think you started out by saying, what are the challenges? And some of it's time, but I think, you know, as with everything, um, there's a silver lining to this. Um, 
And I really only look forward to seeing what the next silver lining will be, um, because I think that this this um, project and this collaboratory idea hopefully will just continue to grow. Um, well, and certainly we hope that out of this, you know, modest funding that we're able to offer, there can be continued growth and development that leads to to bigger and better things. And it's one of the exciting pieces about working with you, Dave, and your existing team is that we didn't have to rely on funding to build something totally new, but instead we could propel along a group that was already together. Um, and I, I think we see that in in a lot of the progress that your group has made. So you're looking through all this data, trying to make sense of it. What surprised you the most in what you've seen? You know, I think surprises are always interesting because I think that I was talking to our group a couple of phone calls ago, and I said, if if we were to talk about the best things of, uh, about this group, what would you say? Everybody said, this is fun. And just the idea that we're getting together and enjoying each other um, and developing relationships and having fun with it and what we're learning is great. Um, I do think the other surprises around this are to see a, you know, how are schools with and without learning communities creating this idea of a journey? Um, and that I think we have to dig into more, but just seeing that it's happening, um, I really look forward to um, just learning more about that. Um, and then the uniqueness of the time. I, I think that um, this COVID and social justice, um, that's a question that only some of our group has really dug into so far, but just how that's influenced students, um, you know, and kind of what you said, Herodotus, around the before and after is this will be a group um, that will always have been influenced by COVID. Um, and that will be a part of their medical education. And seeing how they talk about it now, it'll be interesting to see how they continue to talk about it um, and how it transforms student physicians. Um, will they be more public health? Will they be more social justice oriented? Um, it's made the, the Learning Communities Institute, our research network, you know, has said, we should get a social justice, you know, project going, you know, of, uh, and see what people are, are doing um, and how they're addressing it uh, through learning communities. Yeah, it, it's, I think it's one of the most fascinating pieces for me. It's not just the pandemic, it's the social justice part is yet another pandemic, if you want to call it. It's been there, now it's unraveled. So it it, it puts us as the academy, academicians in a very different perspective. And we're also the before and after, right? We left the before and now we're living the after and we're wondering what we can do better. So, so I think all of those pieces are um, exciting, I think, from this project and hopefully can give us more information, more data of what else we can do to form this, this new physicians. I think that's really true. And I think this, this idea of research and the idea of uh, uh, curiosity around this is really interesting because one of the things we've said to students um, right from the start is that 
COVID isn't happening to you, it's happening. And then we have to figure out the um, consequence or what's, what's the result of that, you know, because I think framing it that way, there were a lot of students who were like, this is awful. You know, I'm isolated. This is happening to me. This is medical school or college wasn't supposed to be like this. Um, well, it is. So it's happening. How are we going to be influenced and shaped by this? Um, and hopefully that's going to be a position that we can, or a way that we can look at it, um, such that we can use it as a source of inquiry. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's provided challenges, it's provided opportunities, right? So uh, as you said, it's not looking at it happened to me and therefore I'm the victim here. Yes, it did. But I think it's as important to see what can we do about it in the future? How can we fix things that uh, un, that were revealed during this time? So as we're coming to maybe perhaps a little bit closer to an end of our episode, what future directions do you see out of this project? You know, there is more to it. Yeah, yeah. So I think the second half of our project, which as we finish with looking at the data, one of the things we've talked about is how do you take our two projects together, which give us a fourth year view of professional identity formation and then a pre-clerkship view is what are the steps that have that students have described and how can we further the field and think about is there a coaching manual or a way to describe the steps and foster that development in students? And so that's going to be the second half of the project. I think collectively we we potentially have, you know, kind of the first data set looking at a four-year view of professional identity formation and and how are we going to tell that story and what story is does the data tell? Um, and you know, not only papers, but you know, is there a is there a, a monograph? Is there a book? You know because much of the professional identity formation stuff has either been small studies or theoretical studies uh, that's integrating a lot of things about development and professional development. Um, and so those are some of the ideas that we're thinking of um, as we get immersed in more and more of the data. Um, well, and, and certainly I will push even more and say, is the, does the journey end at the end of the four years? Or does the journey begin at the beginning of medical school? So then there is a little more to it, I think. This professional identity formation that we call is your identity forming before you even become a medical school student when you're thinking about it. And does it continue when you're becoming a physician? Absolutely. You know, and I think the more we can think of this as a process, you know, uh, we certainly think about separate steps of undergraduate and graduate medical education. And we can see in the medical education literature that people are kind of saying, how can we bridge that gap and make it one continuous process? You know, and that goes on for life, you know, and as we think about um, our own professional development and let's say we become medical educate medical educators. Okay. What about the teacher identity? You know, or what about your uh, leadership identity? And it is these multiple identities that we keep building onto. Um, and 
so I think it really is a lifetime of a, a lifetime of identity formation um, and development. Out of all of this project and the talk that we had today, if you had to give our audience a couple of take-home messages, what would it be? I think the take-home message is you should model and embody the process and the product that you're trying to create. And you should really work to reinforce um, the idea of medical education as a transformational journey. Um, and that however you're going to do it, whether it be through learning communities or some other model, you should really work to make it an accompanied journey such that you're working with people and you're working together to get people through this because it's a tough enough process. You don't have to prove this individually over and over again. Um, I think we can accompany our learners um, on this process and just be with them every step of the way. Well, Dave, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. It's been a great conversation. It's so much fun to hear about your collaboratory and the progress you've made. We're so excited to see what comes next. So uh, on behalf of Herodotus Elenis, uh, my name is Michael Brown. Thank you so much for listening today. <laughs> <laughs>